episode 222 Welcome back to episode 2 of the Broadband Podcast. My name is Gregory James. I'm Brody Benson. In this episode, we're going to cover Worlds and the earth-shattering news of draft packs yes. being released. Huge Brody's very excited. I am super excited. I've got an interview with Lucas Leitzinger I did at the Plugged In Tour. Our current event we're going to cover is Crypto Locker, criminals on the loose. On the loose. In your base, killing your dudes. Yes. The featured book is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And our Q&A session this episode is on paid abilities and timing structures. Brody Benz is going to drop some knowledge on you. I have been enthused to watch all the coverage, both from Fantasy Flight and different uh, podcasts, and uh, obviously Team Covenant doing a fantastic job uh, at Worlds covering that, especially the news of the drafting we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, Brody, talk a little bit about what you see at Worlds, what was successful, and what wasn't. You know, I would like to have uh, more info, and hopefully Fantasy Flight will put that out at some point, the way they did with the plugged into our stats, because I know we had extreme numbers of participation at Worlds. But um, uh, as of now, there there's no big stats breakdown, right? Like, uh, 40% of entrants had criminals as their runner faction. Or, you know, I, I, I'm really curious to see if the trends that we saw from the plugged-in tour continue into Worlds, as I expect they did, which is why I'm also not surprised to see uh, Andromeda take the championship. Um, like you said, definite, definite respect to Jens for taking that, but... Uh, yeah, she is. She's strong. She's not a, a shocker. Strong not no, a shocker. I, that yeah, it was if Jinteki had won, I'd have been like, "What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really?" But uh, yeah, uh, although HP uh, engineering the future instead of what I, I would put money down on Wayland. If you'd ask me, who's gonna win? I'd say, okay, well, looking at the plugged into results, it's gonna be Wayland. He's got the strongest chance. So that part's cool. But um, yeah. Also, uh, one of our compatriots that we play with. Uh, to me regularly, Brent was there. So was Russell. And and Russell went as well. So we want to give them props for heading out there and testing their metal against the, the best of the best. Yeah. Um, wish I could have gone out there and fail wild, but That's right. you know, we, we, some of us have uh, other other activities uh, planned for that. Um, so I would encourage everybody to head over if you want to dive further into it. Go on Twitch TV, watch the matches, um, watch the interview that Steven did with uh, Jans and uh, the Andrew. gentleman that and Andrew, Andrew that Bean. played. The, yeah, fantastic interviews. Mm-hmm. They talk about their processes. They talk about how they were, uh, you know, their decision making on the whole thing because it looked one way, but actually some other things were going on. And, and this is at the end of a tournament, right? I mean, they've been playing for hours. Yeah, they were already, you know, on the edge of exhaustion, which oh, yeah. I know what it's like to play for seven, eight hours straight and then, you know, have your real, the the real matches at the end after right. you've kind of gone through all this. So I, I just want to give them a lot of respect and props for kind of laying all their their uh, thought props. Yeah, yeah, their thoughts out there for that, man. It was really good. So check out that coverage and uh, let's talk a little bit about drafting. The big news. Yes. It's explosive. It's explosive. It's uh, it's drafting. It's I'm, drafting. I'm super excited. We are gonna draft. We, I, I'm gonna. I don't even know. I don't know about you. I'm gonna drag you kicking and screaming into the draft, probably. But 
Well, I did a little bit of drafting. I'm not overly enthused about it, to be quite honest, in a living card game, yeah. but I do think it shores up. It's the only glaring area that I saw as a whole before. Yeah. So, you know, so even though I'm not overly enthused about it, I think it's good for the meta and I think it's going to be really exciting for a lot of people. I did a little bit of it when I when I played Magic and now it's here for Android. Yeah. So. I think you're right. I think and that's a good statement is that it was the the one thing living card games don't do. And and rightly so, right? That's you know, we're trying to get away from the from the random purchasing and you not knowing what you get out of a pack and drafting has that as a requirement. So it would seem that outside of perhaps a cube draft if I don't know if you know what cube drafting is. Well, let's talk a little bit about a cube draft. So cube drafting, um, as a as a format, if you want to call it a format, is is very much similar to regular drafting, where you have a subset of the card pool um, that's specifically for randomizing, right? Only the difference in it is with a, with a regular draft, the card pool has been randomized for you, right? You get your draft packs. In, in other games, it's boosters. In this game, it's the draft packs that Fantasy Flight puts out. Uh, and they've got a subset of the card pool, and in certain frequencies, and then you open and you draft them. In a cube, you make your own subset of the card pool. You choose which cards go in and which cards you leave out. So you could add in um, cards that don't see as, as much play, like um, you know, Disruptor, Net Police, stuff like that. Yeah. And you leave out cards that you don't want to see. If you're sick of Account Siphon, if you're sick of Data Sucker, you can leave those out of the draft pool. And thus you control what your draft meta, quote unquote, looks like. You know, you, you, the cards you pick will shape the draft environment. Um, and then you, from then on, it just goes the same way. You randomize the, a, a subset of those cards. Everybody gets these pseudo packs, and then they do a draft with them. Construct decks. So that's drafting the cube, or or gleaming the cube, as I like to call it. And <laughs> Fantasy Flight, it looks like, has kind of crafted their draft packs very specifically. They've made a deliberate move to introduce drafting into Android Nightrunner. Um, in a way that I feel like is different. Uh, Lucas kind of spoke about how it's slightly different than the way that it works for uh, Game of Thrones, the Game of Thrones LCG. Uh, Android just, I feel like, has this kind of privileged place now in Fantasy Flight's for sure. uh, canon, and they are giving some love, some major love. Uh, X-Wing has blown up for them, but I just feel like Netrunner. I just want to give a shout-out to all the Netrunner fans around the world that have really exploded this from all across Europe, Australia. Um, Poland has been huge in this. Yes, Poland has been our so our spoiler source for like half of the cards where so awesome. we don't get the, te the full text. It's blocked by a card fan, and then some Polish fan will be like, oh, I know what that says in Polish. Here's the English translation. Here you go. Thank you. Thank you, Poland. Thank you, Poland. So we're excited for, for drafting. It's going to be a huge shift in in the meta. and uh, Yeah, yeah. So um, it's be the interesting thing about um, the, the draft set that we've seen, so we don't have full intel on it, obviously, because they're not even out yet. This is how crazy obsessive we are. We're analyzing something that's just been announced recently. But... Um, you, according to people who are there at Worlds, I've been, I've been following some of the details online, and it's very interesting to see how Fantasy Flight has chosen to shape the draft meta in Android Netrunner, the cards that they've left out of the pool. It's only 170 or so of the core set plus Genesis cards are in there, and the actual full uh, card set of all core plus all Genesis is like, I don't know, 225 cards or something like that. So the, the choice of what they left out is very interesting. Like, um, for example, they have left out uh, Account Siphon. They left out stim hack, left out indexing, three really powerful 
events which you see a lot of play these days. Desperado, I think, is out, if I recall correctly. Um, but uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's interesting to me because, you know, you wonder, did they do that because it made an unpleasant draft? Or did they do that because they know those cards are uh, very, very powerful? Or maybe those are two sides of the same coin, right? Those are powerful cards that make drafting unpleasant. We don't want to go for that. Uh, the other big thing about the drafting is, is the identities they pick. The, they're influence-free, right? You have infinite influence. Use all the cards you want, and then the smaller deck size. They're 30, 30 card minimums. You play to six agenda points rather than seven, which already changes things a lot, right? Because you, you score a three-pointer, it's half the game right there. Um, I don't know. It's, it's going to be exciting. I'm, I could talk about this for hours. I'm super pumped. I think that the store champion and uh, the initiatives that they've kind of put out yeah. to kind of foster the community. Yeah. Drafting is going to be a huge part of that. Of course. Um, like I said, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not the biggest drafting fan. Um, I don't like... Uh, I don't. I don't like NASCAR. <laughs> I don't like blueprints. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I studied architecture, but um, <laughs> but uh, I, although that may not even be my strongest suit, I'm still really excited for it. I still think it's going to be really fun to sit down with all your friends and kind of throw this different angle on this the the structure of the game. I think steers away from that kind of incredibly speculative secondary market where there's all these super rare cards and yeah. there's three levels of rare and there's I mean it just gets so ridiculous with magic and some and Yu-Gi-Oh and all those like games like now. I'm not going to kick on them cuz obviously everyone that's listening to this is probably an ex-magic addict <laughs> but I got out and I'm glad I got out because it just got really crazy and I'm super glad uh, that this they have drafting in a living card game. I think it can work. It's not going to collapse it. It's not no. going to ruin it. The the cards that they chose to do drafting with, I think, are very well chosen. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Cyber Feeder, but in certain you know <laughs> certain dynamics and and in certain synergies, it's really effective. So yeah. we were just talking uh, last night. Actually, I was trying to figure out uh, trying to use uh, Jin Shaharzad and Cyber Feeder in a in, make a, money. in a synergistic end. Make money, make make money. So uh, I'm always trying to make money. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The the best thing I think is the way they handled this right because. Um, they still keep the strength of the LCG format. You, when you buy a corset, when you buy a data pack, you know what you're getting, and you're getting the same thing that everybody else who bought that corset or bought that data pack gets. That's important to preserve, right? So then this is nice as like an optional add-on for those who are who want to pursue the drafting experience. They can get the draft packs, but it does not bleed over into the 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 regular LCG experience, right? I mean, that's that's key to me, and I'm really glad that they went that way with it. Um, and then I, I wanted to circle back and touch on, you mentioned store championships. That, that's another thing that they announced recently that's a big deal. Um, I know our store, Tabletop, Game & Hobby, Overland Park, yeah. they've, uh, they've announced that they're going to be part of the, the store championships. And the increased level of um, fan support you know, for, for events and that sort of thing, that ties very closely into drafting, like you said. It gives another, another format, another, another set of prizes, more opportunities for participation to build communities and for FFG to support them, I think it's great. I am going to play an interview that I did with Lucas Lightsinger, the lead designer of the game. Lucky dog. It was an interesting interview. I found out some very interesting facts. 
after the mic was off and I put everything away, I kept talking with him and found out some great little tidbits. One of them is that he's actually from St. Louis. And another is that he was hired after Damon. So uh, we're going to play that interview for you here and now. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that he brings up in there. I asked him what he brings to the table in designing Netrunner. How does he like cyberpunk culture? Things like that. And he had some really interesting observations. So here we go. So I am here with Lucas. We are past the uh, chaos of the last, my goodness, it's 1.45 in the morning, seven hours. Still early, still early. Yeah, we still, I'm impressed. He has been uh, touring around the nation, uh, bringing the joy and gospel of the Netrunner ethos to the masses, to the unwashed masses from what it smells like in here. Um, but uh Introduce yourself and say what you do on Fantasy Flight Teams. Hello, listeners. My name is Lucas Litzinger. I'm the lead designer and developer of Android Netrunner. And I've been working on the game since the very beginning. You can uh, find my name on the back of the box if you're wondering about my actual experience with the game. Putting you on notice. Exactly. So you can trust me. I'm a legit source. (laughs) Okay, so Lucas, uh, my first question for you, B. I'm only going to hit you with two questions since it's almost two in the morning. Um, and that is, like, what are you bringing to Netrunner? Like, what do you love about Cyberpunk, and what are you bringing to Netrunner that is from that Cyberpunk world? It's a good question. First of all, I'd say that Android Netrunner is probably not straight-up Cyberpunk. We like to think of it more as Cyber Noir and kind of a blending of, of genres versus, like, straight-up one or the other and so especially if you look at the origins of the IP is the Android board game and that is you know you're following detectives and there's all of these like murders and conspiracies and things going on and you don't even actually have kind of the net space cyberspace part that we have in in Netrunner so Netrunner kind of takes that idea of this uh, maybe not so far flung future where the world has changed, crime has not, people are the same, you're still having the same sort of things going on. And then we add this uh, extra element of hacking and running to it. And so I think it's really fun to explore that area and to pull on, you know, various various kind of pop culture and even maybe other ideas of, of what that space would look like. And, you know, for a brief runner for example like we want the cyberspace world to be different like everybody kind of perceives it in a different way and so we always kind of want to push the boundaries of what that is actually like that's good and I think you guys are doing that one of the things that I noticed about uh, the game is something you kind of touched on in that it's not just cyberpunk and it's not just noir it's not just um, capers it's, uh, it has so many uh, mechanics and uh, narrative elements to it that uh, it really feels rich and populated and it's really an itch that I feel like it's hit a nerve like it's really something that people were looking for and that's why it's exploded in popularity so uh, my last question for, be, for you would be uh, and we might have some 
bonus bonus rounds and outtakes. But my last question to you is like real simple. Like, what's your favorite combo? It's a, another interesting question. I mean, Android Netrunner doesn't have a lot of straight up combos if you're coming from say the Magic school of combos where I put together this deck and all of a sudden I'm winning the game with it yeah. and the game is over. But there is a lot of synergy between the cards. A lot of cards work well together. I would say simple stuff, for example, like, oh, I drop a Parasite and then I drop a Surge or two Surges on that Parasite to blow up a piece of ice that you didn't see coming. Or I'm going to crack in Deja Vu, crack in Ice Destruction combos I enjoy playing from the runner side. From the Corporation side, stuff uh, dealing damage, for example, Neurally MP, Neurally MP, Neurally MP combo to win the game is very effective out of Jinteki in a lot of cases. Here on the tour, we've been playing some future cards, so you guys might have seen Punitive Counter-Strike, that spoiler. Uh, I've been having a lot of fun with that in Fetal AI, so they access the Fetal AI, they take damage, and then you follow it up, give them more damage, meet damage, not net damage, so they might have a harder time preventing it, especially if they're running a net shield. I know, who runs a net shield? <laughs> I did, I used to. Yeah, I definitely did. a player, that's a card I really don't want to see on the other side of the table. I was so. running, I was running a net shield, and I also, then I switched to a feedback filter, right. and then I gave up, and I just, I just had run with big hands. So, right. very public sympathy, maybe. Yeah. But the yeah. feedback filter can be nice. It can, it's not very efficient if you're just going to use it to keep taking, trying to prevent the net damage, but it's a little bit more flexible since you can use it to try to stop a cerebral overrider. Exactly. Get rid of some of that hot spiroid uh, brain damage. Exactly. And that's, I was running into so much Haas that, especially because of how successful creation and control was, I just want to congratulate you because that expansion pack blew up. I can't, I can't tell you how many people that were on the fence about buying the game that I was running into and I'm evangelizing. I'm, I, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm an effective evangelist. And they, once they came across that, then were pawing through the cards and looking, they were just fascinated. And so many of the mechanics of that introduced, people love it and jive right into the game. So I'm sure it sold out. It looked like I can't, so many people were pissed about it being in the dock in like San Diego. I mean, I had guys like tracking it. They were like calling people in San Diego, like longshoremen trying to get it moved quicker. I mean, it was it was crazy. It's, a, it's an interesting expansion because I think a lot of tournament players have kind of come to the conclusion that a lot of the Hotspirate stuff isn't quite as easy to build a maybe tier one competitive. Sherlock. <laughs> Sherlock. And that's not even in that expansion. Oh, well, yeah. Cycle, right? But uh, the new IDs are a lot of fun to play with. It adds a lot of energy to the game. There's just a lot more space to explore. And over time, like people are going to find effective strategies. I think at Worlds coming up here, we'll see some crazy decks that probably take advantage of some of those cards in ways that people don't expect. And so it's a it's a good expansion also because I think for, for people who are on the fence, like you're talking about more casual players, they can, you know, maybe they don't have to buy a pack a month, but hey, they can start picking 
picking up a box now and maybe going with some larger expansions that we might release in the future and kind of keep up with the game in that way versus having to have every single release. And then we'll still give them some nice uh, variety and good decks to play with since we like to include deck lists in those. So for players who don't even like the deck build that much, but hopefully they'll get into it as I continue to play the game. I think it's a really good product. Okay, so one of the things that Steven touched on that I really felt like it was a, a strong element of the game was how well you guys have stewarded the original IP. And first of all, a big shout out to Richard Garfield, who is obviously the magnum opus of card games. Um, he, he's just done it big for so long. Uh, but uh, you guys have kind of brought the game from its infancy through adolescence, and now it is a rampaging full-grown adult that is doing so well. Um, just talk a little bit about uh, your your the, the living card game format and what you enjoy about it and what you see coming in the future. Yeah, I mean, the living card game format is pretty amazing, uh, especially for someone like me who whenever I play a game, I want to try everything out and I want to dabble in everything, which is really hard to do in most collectible games. You know, it, it makes it easy for you to keep up and to try everything that you want to try. And, you know, it's not going to break your wallet in the process of doing so. So, you know, we're all about telling you what you get and, you know, not throw up, you know, pulling any punches. And, uh, you know, it gives you it gives you a lot of uh, it gives you a lot of choices when approaching the game because you know that you're on an even playing field as everybody else and it's up to you and your creativity to try and your, your play to try to, you know, overcome your opponent. And so the living card game format is really just about having that even playing field and not having to buy your way to a competitive deck. And so I think uh, it's been very successful for us. You know, it started out kind of just as an experiment, like it wasn't really going to go anywhere. And then we sold a couple packs of fixed cards and we're like, oh, wow. People really respond to this idea of just, oh, I just buy this and I know what I'm getting and I can play the game and I have a full playset. And so uh, I think we'll definitely look to probably expand it into the future. Who knows? Maybe, you know, if more expansions are coming out, love to do more games. So keep tuned to the FFG website. Yeah. Okay, so final, uh, final question for you here. Uh, Edward Snowden, traitorous villain or hero of the people? It's a, it's a interesting topic. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where I'd fall on that spectrum. I think it can be a little bit of both, honestly. You know, sometimes the ends justify the means, and sometimes they don't, and it can be hard to tell exactly you know where someone falls. I would say, in general, I feel like transparency is a good thing. And so uh, I think the information that's getting out there is, is helpful, and uh, the public can definitely know about it. You heard it here first. So what a great time I had talking with Lucas. Rub it in. Rub it in. And just and learning all these secrets and <laughs> the secret handshake, the secret yeah. Android uh, 
uh, ring he gave me. Yeah, the decoder the ring. Decoder ring. Yes, yeah, um, works on code gates. Was fantastic. <laughs> it was well. The lock pick is built in. Yes. To the decoder. Can, can ring. anyone tell I didn't get to go to plugged in? So it was <laughs> a good time. No, it was really cool that uh, that he was willing to take an interview in the middle of this big tour at uh, the the tail end of this big tour that he's been running. Him and the staff have been running for yeah seven week. hours into it. Yeah. yeah. I mean that's that's a class act right there. That's great. It was. Um, so about the interview, um, I thought it was interesting that he mentioned, I use the word interesting too much. I thought it was neat that he mentioned, um, the, the, the cyber noir context, because that's, that's great. They, there are certainly elements that are more noir than cyberpunk. The concept, like you got bank job, you know, that's, that's the, the, that kind of uh, gangster. Yes, exactly. More than the cyberpunk, that's the noir element coming to the fore. Um, and then he mentioned the Android board game, which... I haven't played, but I have done some research into it. I have a buddy who's uh, who's probably going to buy it, and he's talking about it a lot. He's done some research into it. And it sounds like that is the cyber-noir experience, right? Like maybe even more noir than cyber-noir, maybe like neo-noir. Because, um, like Lucas said, that there's no emphasis on the net side of things. You're not hacking. What you've got is like a detective story in the future um, where... The, the trying to find the killer, but at the same time, all the investigators have these personal businesses. There's like a, an entire decks of cards based around your personal issues, you know, like in the noir stories, you got the, the PI. It's not just that he's a PI, it's also that he's got a troubled past and his woman left him and he's got a drinking problem, right? Um, and so the investigation... <laughs> the classic PI yeah. story. Yeah, dames. <laughs> but, uh, so, so he's got to, to face his demons and resolve his issues and that's just as important as figuring out the case and who done it. Um, and and it, the game, as I understand it, deals with that. It's focused around that, right? Like, it, um, it's a narrative experience. They don't even, unlike Clue, where the killer's known but ahead of time and you have to work it out from deductive reasoning, as I understand it, the game is set up such that uh, you won't know who the murderer is until the end of the game. And then, if I'm if I'm hearing my friend right, the, the resolution of your issues, for good or for bad, also play into that. And that's really cool. I, I haven't seen that in a board game. And I have a closet full of games. Yeah, I think this game really seems massive. Like you said, it's not just a elimination of possibilities and kind of deductive reasoning. It's it's also, you know, you build a narrative. And so they kind of have married a cyber noir setting with a uh, an RPG element of building your yeah. character yeah. that they could they actually carry over into your next one to the best of my knowledge like the next time you play it like you can play that character with those really? attributes that you I did not know that I think so I may be wrong but that Walter who is a yeah. manager at Tabletop Games in Overland Park Kansas which is a fantastic locale where we play most of our games yes um he was telling me about it and it just seems just very broad in scope and a lot of moving parts yeah well you know the thing is is that there's this great renaissance in tabletop games and they have produced almost a whole new genre of oh, games yeah. that go on for six solid hours twilight imperium and some of these other games are just massive games that will access and allies access and allies you can commit to playing that game for six hours yeah and crack open, you know, a, a stout and sit back because this is going to be really interesting. We're going to have a lot of fun. And I look forward to that. You know, I really want to uh, play the game Android because I love the universe. I love that. Just I'm so intrigued by like the, the, the structure of it, both narratively and 
the universe that it's in. So I'm pretty excited to play it, and we won't bore you to death with. Um, we, we won't do a play-by-play uh, when we play the game for you on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we won't break out the game and do oh, a whole podcast me, episode. I'll do a board game podcast any day of the week. I love board games. Well, maybe we will. And then one of the other elements that Lucas brought up, which I thought was interesting, because I kind of asked him like a simple question, just trying to throw it out there. What's his favorite combo? Yeah. And he said, there are no combos, son. There are no combos, son. Yes. There is no, there is no combo, Neil. Um, no, and I, but, but I actually, I think he's right. I mean, not just because he's the developer and his name's in the box, but because, um, to me, anyway, a combo in the, in the CCG magic sense is like the Prosperous Bloom deck. That, to me, was the defining combo deck, because that was the era in which I played magic, where, um, you're not even playing the same game as the other guy, right? Like, he shows up, and he's ready to put guys down and turn them sideways and kill you. And you're like, I don't care. I, I you know, he's playing the game of, I gotta reduce your life total to zero. And you're like, I don't care about my life total at all. As long as it's not zero, I don't care. What I care about is drawing the cards that I want, putting the pieces into play, and then I win with some unbeatable combo, right? I draw a million cards, I discard all of my cards for mana, and then I do something like infinite point drain life, you're dead. Um, and I don't think that exists in Netrunner um, right now, because, you know, even the most combo-tastic deck, like uh, we, we, we got a guy in our in our Netrunner group, league, whatever you want to call it, he runs that mid-season, you know what I'm talking about, the mid-season tag storm, God, right? I hate it. Oh, I know. Um, but I don't even, I don't want to call that a combo, because, uh, uh, first of all, the pieces are, are more obvious, right? Psychographics is obviously there for the tag storm, and, and you know, that's a synergy. Combos in ma- in the magic sense, at least as, as I interpret them, are often stuff that is not necessarily obvious or not designed to work together. Usually they come from entirely different sets, uh, very chronologically far apart, and it's more like, oh, hey, look, I figured out this old card that it can be used with this new card, and then suddenly it's completely insane. Um, Bloodbraid Elf, but no. Um, so the the other thing is, um, even when he's playing that midseason deck, he's still playing the same game we are, right? And I don't just mean in the sense of I can make runs at your servers and steal your agendas, but like he still needs credits to run them to play midseason even and to to run the trace and to bury you under tags. If you account siphon or vamp him, um, then he can't his combo doesn't work. So he still has to play the interactivity game of I still need to put ice down, I still need to defend things. Um, it, it just it just changes how he has to play that game because he wants you to, he wants to get money and then have you steal one agenda. But but he, his interactivity with you he wants to be on his terms. But he never leaves that that interactive space. He's never like, you're running my servers to steal agendas, but I'm not even playing that game. I don't care. I'm not going to put ice down. I don't... You know what I'm saying? I, I get you. I think the way that you're defining a combo is three or four cards that when used in conjunction obviate the need for playing the game as it's traditionally played. And the way that I'm the way that I'm defining combo is is kind of simple. It's just using two or three cards together to do produce a desired effect. You know, it's a little bit more dialed down. As a guy that received a snare double scorch, I can tell you <laughs> there are combos in this game. You know, very simply put, there are combos in this game. You know, so yes, they can be prevented. Yes, you know, but statistically speaking, getting a snare double scorch is is a very low probability. Like the chances that that's going to happen. You know, I was running with the six cards in my hand, and that wasn't enough. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like so, yeah, it, it, it just. It, it there are combos like Lucas mentioned, which was the the parasite and double surge to blow up your ice. You know that's a combo. It's just I mean it is using those cards in tr- 
conjunction to produce that desired effect. It's not a game ender. It's not a it's not a uh, mid season replacement psychographics project Beal, and you just explode with tags and advancement points everywhere and like confetti shooting <laughs> from the table. It's just you know a combo. Yeah, you're talking combo is in you know left hook haymaker right, just the one two punch. But I, I do think I mean I think in the interview that's how he he defined it was was more along the lines of not to say my definition is better than yours, but I think that's the <laughs> one that the designer adopted right. He said you know he said that the thing you cited parasite and surge is a synergy. It's not a true combo. Yeah. Right. So I mean maybe we are just splitting hairs and quibbling over terms. Yeah. Well, agree to disagree. It's fun. I mean either way to me like I definitely view a. A snare scorch or a snare double scorch. Okay. Yeah. As a combo that I'm like. And if you want to call it a okay, combo, cool. or you want to call it a synergy, don't call it a comeback. Yeah. Well, no, no. I was saying I've been whether here you. For years. Yeah. <laughs> it, whether you want to call it a combo or whether you want to call it a synergy, obviously, that sort of thing is definitely key to having a good, interactive, interesting, complex game. And this game has it in spades. So there's that. Boom. Well, many thanks to Lucas for bringing up all those great points. One of the last ones he, I kind of asked him about. And to be fair, so everybody knows, I did tell Lucas that I was going to, the questions that I was going to ask him. So he knew the question about Snowden was coming. I didn't just kind of. Oh, good. That's, that's a good disclaimer to throw out there. just sandbag him. That's good. You know, like I asked him about it. So I wondered when I heard that. I was like, oh. No, I'm not that dude. I don't want to be that dude. Good. So I definitely asked him about it. it you know, it let him know that I was going to be asking the questions that I did. And and it was a great discussion. So speaking of Snowden and kind of cybersecurity, we'll segue into our current event, which is the outbreak of CryptoLocker. CryptoLocker is a category of um, malware that would be known as ransomware. And basically, you get spearfished. Uh, where they send you a link or an email that looks like something very official. It directs you to a uh, server that looks very official. You know, maybe its uh, URL will be paypal.ru or something along that lines. And it introduces a malware that encrypts segments of your data. It can map your drives. If you have USBs plugged in or external hard drives, it can even start to encrypt those things. It'll discover drives. Um, and this ransomware basically puts an encryption protocol on your data and it says, if you want it back, you gotta pay us you know, 300 bucks or, or some uh, in that range um, in Bitcoin. And oh, it is Bitcoin. in Bitcoin. Too yes. good to be true. We will talk card? about Bitcoin at some point because <laughs> Bitcoin is one of the greatest inventions of, of our of our era. Um, but in any case, uh, this is clearly a criminal enterprise. I just want to give props to Gabriel Santiago and yeah. his people because Crypto Locker is a beast of a uh, thing. Except for this is mostly just targeting random people. It's not specifically targeting the rich. That would be the only yeah, caveat I would offer in that area. There's, there's where it falls down, right? Because they're the ones with all the money. Yeah, they're the ones with all the money, exactly. <laughs> so in either case, uh, Crypto Locker is our current event. If you guys want to check that out, Steve Gibson has a great uh, podcast, Security Now podcast, and uh, just love him, love Gibson Research Corporation and Leo Laporte and the whole crew um, and have uh, really learned a lot 
from them. Um, so our current event is Crypto Locker. Yeah, so our next segment is going to be on our featured book. Uh, for this episode, I decided that we needed to feature Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. It's a seminal work, obviously. Uh, the movie Blade Runner is based on it, which is a cyberpunk awesome. classic. Awesome. Yeah, just an incredible um, piece of cinema. But the book uh, is is equally as masterful. We're not going to get into the whole debate of is the book better than the movie? No. Blah. Just appreciate the mediums for what they are and love on them. So, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was um, one among many of Philip K. Dick's exploratory romps into the metaverse of of, of noir culture, like Flow My Tears, the policeman said, and drugs and uh, AIs, Turing tests, cloning. I mean, he just threw everything in. And normally it takes somebody really skilled to weave a narrative that you want to follow and feel emotionally invested in. And he pulls it off with a plum. Um, I loved it and you should read it. And that's... That's it. That's the end of the story, buddy. <laughs> so for our Q&A segment today, we want to cover paydabilities and timing structures. And this is something that I've wanted to cover for a while because it's something that's important for people new to Netrunner to learn. And, and it's not um, not always as clear as uh, as maybe it could be in the rules, not not just pointing any fingers, but it's a complex concept and, and hard to understand, especially if you come from uh, other card games like Magic where there's a certain element of unlearning what you learn in order to understand how Netrunner does timing priority. So um, the first thing to mention is the distinction between a paid ability and an action. Uh, a, a paid ability is any, I mean, just to restate the rule book, a paid ability is anything that has a cost, colon, effect, like uh, all icebreakers, one credit, colon, break, barrier, subroutine, that's a paid ability, right? Uh, cost and then effect. Now, an action is a paid ability that has a click in its cost, like magnum opus, click, gain two credits. That is an action. And uh, everybody starts with a set of actions and eight to them, right? Like click, gain a credit, click, draw a card, click, play an event or an operation, depending on your side, all that stuff. Uh, but the thing to note about timing windows uh, is that with actions, when an action starts, when you spend the click, that action has to resolve before any any paid abilities can be triggered. So if, for example, the runner on their turn spends a click for the action play uh, an event from your hand playing its pay, paying its play cost, and they play Forge Activation Orders on one of my ice, I do not have uh, a window in which I can use paid abilities like try to res Akitero Watanabe. Well, that's not a paid ability, but there's, there's no window for me to respond to that action with a paid ability that would let me reduce the ice cost, the res cost of that ice. I just have to suck it up and wish that I had that out beforehand, right? Like, Watanabe's gotta be res before forged activation orders gets played in order to be of use there. Otherwise, it's just, you gotta pay the full cost and that's that's all there is to it. Um, so, so when you talk about timing windows, um, actions sort of define when paid abilities can and cannot be used. Uh, first and foremost, after every action and uh, before, too, so like at the beginning of your turn, before you even take any actions, there's a window for both players to play 
uh, paid abilities by paying their costs. So the important thing to know about uh, paid abilities during a run is that the run is the exception to the general rule of when you spend a click for an action, that whole action has to resolve before you can use other abilities. Um, there's several explicitly defined windows within a run that you can use paid abilities, but you still have to follow that structure. And any time there's a paid ability, in a run, out of run, whenever, the active player gets to use all of their abilities first, in any order they choose, as many as they choose. Then, priority passes to the other player. If the other player says, nope, I'm good, I have nothing, I, I decline to act, then that window closes and we move forward with the turn. There's no, no backseas, there's no, I'm gonna activate this ability, wait to see what you do about it, and then activate another ability. You put everything down on the table that you want, and then you give the other player an opportunity to act, and if they decline, we're done, we're moving forward. Why does this matter? Here's why this matters. Um, let's say that you got uh, a, an archer backed up by a corporate troubleshooter that you're going to use, and you're just going to wreck the runner's face. You're going to trash programs, gain some money while you're at it, and the run is going to be glorious. They're running on you. Uh, according to the timing structure of a run, which you can find in the rulebook, but there's been an updated version that Fantasy Flight has put on their support page for Netrunner in the FAQ. So look that up. Um, so the runner approaches the, the ice. Uh, there's a paid ability window. The runner's probably going to go, no, I'm good. But they may use Cortez chip here, right, to boost the, uh, boost the um, res cost of that ice because that's, that's a paid ability, and here's the window to use it. Um, but let's say the runner declines, says, no, I'm good. The corp has the opportunity to use uh, paid abilities and to... Um, res the ice. So you res the archer. At this point you need to res and use the corporate troubleshooter because if you don't what happens is you res the ice you're like cool I'm done with paid abilities I'm good. Then we proceed to step three we go on further with the run and the runner encounters the archer and the first now there's a paid ability window but the priority goes to the runner and the runner uses all of their abilities in one go. They, they boost the icebreaker strength they break all the subs and they go cool do you have anything you want to use and it's too late for you to use corporate troubleshooter at this point because they've already broken all the subs, it'll have no effect, there was no point. So you need to use it before they get that encounter window to use the paid abilities on the icebreakers. Another example of this is a false lead. So an agenda that when scored, uh, you could forfeit it as a paid ability and cause the runner to lose clicks, assuming they have two clicks to lose. If they only have one, then it doesn't work. So let's say they're running on you. Uh, they do something, then they run, so they have two clicks remaining, and you've got an Ichi, and you want to wreck some programs and you're going to use false lead to rob them of their last two clicks so they can't just click through the Ichi, right? Uh, so it's the same exact principle at work. When, when the approached ice is rezzed, you need to use that paid ability. Then, first the runner gets an opportunity to do some stuff. They do nothing. Then you res the ice, and you have to use all of your abilities right now. You can't just, use, you can't just do one or two things and then pass priority back to the runner because if they pass, then you don't get a chance to do anything else. We go straight to encountering and breaking of subroutines. So this is the time when you res Ichi, and then you forfeit the false lead to uh, rob the runner of their last two clicks, and then now they can't click through the Ichi, and they have to break it manually if they can, or lose stuff if they can't. Uh, but there's no, you, you don't get the, the chance to have them go to the encounter, and then they get their paid abilities, and they go, okay, well, I'm going to start um, spending money to, to break uh, this ice, and then you use your corporate troubleshooter. Or you don't go to that window and have them say, okay, I'm going to spend one click, to break Ichi's first subroutine, and then you go, well, ha I'm gonna forfeit false lead and use this ability to rob you of your clicks. Like, the runner does everything they're gonna do, and then they pass it to you. So by the time you get a chance to act, whether or not the, the icebreaker's been used to break any subs or clicks have been spent, all of that's been decided, and you didn't have a say in it. Yeah, 
the important thing to remember is really as a rule of thumb for a lot of this is that the corporation does the majority of its abilities and co corporate troubleshooter and those sort of things on approach the the runner is then encountering pulls out all their tricks the corporation has that window closed there i mean the tears hand is is the only and that's because it's a prevent effect. Yeah, is a prevent effect. And the, the tier's hand is the only one that kind of interacts in that, in the middle of that. And even tier's hand, we should take note to mention this, because this is an FAQ, and it was a really big thing on the internet. People were very confused about this. Tier's hand is a prevent effect, and prevent slash avoid effects is the only thing that can violate the windows, right? Like, yeah. you, can, you can use New Angel City Hall in the middle of an action to avoid a tag, because it says avoid receiving a tag. Yeah. Uh, or decoy, or whatever, right? Yeah, prevents are, are like parries. I mean, if yeah. you, you snare me and I use paid abilities, I use my Netrioled or my whatever, my feedback filter, and I pay to not lose my cards, and then I pay my New Anglo City Hall, I never got the tag, I never lost my cards, and yeah. we're going on. And they only work that way because it says prevent exactly. in, the, in the thing, or avoid. And the thing about Tears Hand is, uh, let's say that the runner's going to roll up on a Bioroid Ice, right? And so they use their paid abilities because it's their timing window. So their first ability is I will spend one credit to give Gordian Blade plus one strength. And then I'll spend one credit to give Gordian Blade plus one strength. And then I'll spend one credit to give Gordian Blade plus one strength. They've used three paid abilities. Well, they've used one paid ability three times. And then, I'll, okay, I'll spend one credit to break a subroutine on your Victor 2.0. You can res Tears Hand here because it specifically says res in response to a subroutine about to be broken. And you can trash it because it says it has a prevent effect. Hey, prevent a subroutine from being broken. But it is still the runner's timing window. They haven't passed priority to you. So you prevent that subroutine being broken. The credit's still spent. And the runner can go, okay, I'm going to continue on with my timing window. I spend one credit to break your Victor 2.0 subroutine, and I spend another credit to break your Victor 2.0 subroutine. So all you've managed to do is is stop them from breaking it once by wasting a credit, uh, but it's still their window, and they can still take as many paid abilities as they want to trigger if they can pay the cost. So the, the thing Tears Hand is good at is if during their uh, their paid ability window they want to spend clicks to break the bio ride, then you can forfeit it, or sorry, you can trash it, and prevent that, and then they lost a click, and probably don't have enough to spend any left over. But um, but it's not, you know, it's still the runner's timing window. And even though you get to step outside that momentarily with the prevent effect, it doesn't magically shift the turn away from the runner and onto the corp. And like, aha, now you have to deal with all the other subroutines that you didn't break. That, that's not how it works because it's it's still their turn, right? And so they still have the opportunity to activate more paid abilities. So that's uh, that's the segment on on paid abilities and timing structures. It's really core to some of the uh, the trickier plays, and you know we both know that Netrunner is at its best when both sides are doing those excellent tricky game turning plays. So it's important for everybody to know how that stuff works so they don't have those fall flat. Yeah, and I love what they're doing with the new cards. They're double yeah. operate, you know, operations with double click costs, and they're really starting to pull these paid abilities yeah. into really fantastic personal workshop started the trend and then you yeah. have self-modifying code and uh, there's the upcoming savoir faire which is gonna it's a paid ability to let you install a program from each from your grip during a run i mean like the paid abilities thing is not going away it's going to matter more and more and more as more cards come out that that have paid abilities so it's definitely important for for people to know pay it All right, well, that about wraps it up. Uh, 
for the Overheard Media Group and the Broadband Podcast. My name is Gregory James. I'm Brody Benson. Are you listening? Welcome back to episode two of the Broadband Podcast. My name is Gregory James. I'm Brody Benson. In this episode, we're going to talk about drafting. This news broke at Worlds. This is a huge game shift for for us here. Uh, we're going to talk about the Lucas Lightsinger is in. <laughs> Why do I keep doing that? You lo- you love to talk about the things. <laughs> I do love to talk about all the things. So that was a really enjoyable interview. I really enjoyed speaking with Lucas uh, and covering some of the stuff that is not going to make it into this podcast, this whole take, <laughs> i.e. this take. 